I couldn't negotiate what I thought was uh, fair pay. And actually, when I looked at my competitors in the business, I was probably at a quarter of what they were making. So I decided I could either I could stay here another five years. Um, or I could leave now um, and start from scratch again. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all of the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, how a high school dropout became the co-founder of Jimmy Choo and why she made the decision to leave the immensely popular brand she started to build her own namesake label, Tamara Mellon. What Tamara's learned about choosing the right partners in business, advocating for equal pay, and how to know when the time is right to pull the ripcord on a business. Here's entrepreneur and shoe designer Tamara Mellon. Tamara Mellon, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Very happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you with us. So I was looking at your website, coveting all of the shoes, all of the boots, the beautiful things. But I love how it says co-founded Jimmy Choo, 1996, 20 plus years later now, still obsessed with shoes, but not doing things the traditional way. No, exactly. So even though I'm still obsessed with designing shoes and I'm still obsessed with quality, I still make my shoes in the same way in Italian factories that I did at Jimmy Choo. But now I'm selling them in a different way. So the business model is totally different. I design no collections. Um, I just put new things up every month that are season appropriate. So we don't have to buy things in the wrong season anymore. You know, traditionally, we all deliver collections in, you know, four months ahead, you know, coats mm-hmm. in July and spring, summer and January and February. Who cares? You know, you want to buy something today and you want to wear it tomorrow. Um, and also because it's direct to consumer, which means I don't have to have a wholesale margin in. So I go from factory cost to my customer. So now my retail price is what my wholesale price used to be. For the consumer, that means a lower price point, but still that quality that people would assume they would be paying for. Exactly. So I, I still produce the same quality as all my competitors, whether that's, you know, my old life, Jimmy Choo, Christian Louboutin, Manolo Blahnik, Jean-Vito Rossi, you know, all those, you know, amazing shoe brands, you know, they're made in the same factories as everybody else. But uh, but now I'm able to charge half, which is really exciting for me. So you started Jimmy Choo with a loan from your father, 150,000 pounds. pounds. That's what I was thinking, okay, assuming. Yes. Um did your dad say you needed to pay him back? Because you called it a loan, so it wasn't necessarily a gift. It wasn't a gift. At that point, it was a loan. Um, and then I think he realized that he actually made so much money in the business, he he kind of He's forgot. the investor. But yes, <laughs> he became the investor. So if you actually look at the history of Jimmy Choo, um, he's the only person that actually ever invested in the business. So uh, first of all, he gave me 150000 loan, which is probably $300,000 today. And that's what we started with. Uh, Jimmy and I became 50-50 partners. Um, And then once we were up and running in the first year, he saw it working. And we had orders in that we actually couldn't pay for at the factory. So then he put a million dollars into the company. Was it called Jimmy Choo back then? It was called Jimmy Choo. What made you call it Jimmy Choo instead of Tamara Mellon back then? That's a really good question. Um, 
So when I was uh, British Vogue, I was the accessories editor. And in the early 90s, the only shoe brand that people really were interested in was Manolo Blahnik. There wasn't all the shoe brands that we have today. There weren't all the designers doing accessories like they are today. The, the accessory explosion hadn't started yet. That started in the mid-90s. Um, so I was tired of shooting one designer's shoes. So I found a cobbler in the East End of London called Jimmy Choo. And I would get him to make things for shoots. So I'd go down to his studio and I'd say, hey, Jimmy, I'm doing a gladiator story. Can you make me a gladiator uh, sandal in silver metallic with studs? And I want the buckles here and I want this and I want that. He'd make it. I'd photograph it and I'd put his name in vogue. So that was my light bulb moment. I thought, oh, what a great platform to start a company on. The name is known, but there's no business there. At what point do you decide it's time for me to break off and do my own thing? Well, after 16 years um, and four private equity deals later, <laughs> I was. I think I, I think I did more private equity deals than anybody could do with one company. It was it was a lot. Um, so after 16 years, I decided to leave. Um, and and really, there was you know there was multiple reasons. One that I'd been through so many private equity deals. The other one that I c- couldn't negotiate what I thought was uh, fair pay, fair remuneration um, for uh, for what I was doing. And actually, when I looked at my competitors in the business, I was probably at a quarter of what they were making. So I decided I could either I could stay here another five years um, or I could leave now um, and start from scratch again. And I also had the new business model in mind, which I wanted to do. I was very excited about that. Your competitors primarily were men making shoes for women. Making shoes for women, yes, which is also another crazy thing because people always say to me, why are my shoes so painful? They say, I'm so sick of being in pain. Well, if you think about it, most shoe designers are men and they don't know what it feels like. So I actually know what it feels like to walk in your shoes on many levels. <laughs> and you're the fit model for the shoes. And I'm the fit model. I do all the fit trials myself. So I, and I'm, t- and I do not want to be in pain. So I won't make anything that's painful. And yet you do have heels on, on the shoes. Yes. On many of them. On many. <laughs> and you know, high heel doesn't need to be painful if it's the last is correct, if the balance of the shoe is right. You know, there's, there's technical things you do to make them more comfortable. So you decide to launch the brand in your name. In my name. Finally, that must have felt like a really big deal to be able to put your name on the shoe this time. It did. It was, you know, it was re- it was really exciting. Um, it was also nerve wracking because obviously for 16 years I've been uh, building Jimmy Choo with uh, a brand name, you know, a different brand name. Um, it's it's risks. Because also, you know, what if it didn't work? Oh my God! <laughs> you know, it was like it was. Now it's my name, and but um, but it was no. It's it feels really rewarding. The company's eighteen months old now. It's up and running. It's we see it's working. We see women really responding really well to the to the product, the aesthetic, the business model. So I'm I'm happy with it. What's the biggest learning at this point? Going at your own. The, the biggest learning so far is how much the industry is disrupted right now. So the fashion industry is going through what the music industry went through, you know, several years ago. 
Um, and now when you're building a digital business, you have so much data. So we can respond to what our customer wants so much faster. And that is really exciting. How do you collect that data? How do you learn what the customer wants? Well, we have so much just because we have a direct relationship with her. So she's shopping on our website. Um, we are seeing, we can see now immediately which styles are selling. So if you think about how it used to work, as a designer, you design a collection. You go and present the collection at Fashion Week. A buyer comes in, will cherry pick the pieces that they like, order it. Six months later, it's delivered to the shop floor. They have it for six months, right? And then they, then six months later, they come and tell you what your sell through was. So your feedback That's a year. loop is a year. Right? Wow. So I have feedback from my customers now within days. You automatically know this style is working. This style has less interest. interest. Yeah. Do you, how real time are the decisions that you're making? For example, if there was a shoe on the site that wasn't selling, would you automatically say stop production on this? Or h- how do you think that decision through? Um, yeah, that well, that has happened. So we wouldn't reorder it. We would let it sell through. Um, but when we see something's working, we can jump on it and order it much faster. So a great example is the other day, I wanted to make a press sample of our icon boot, which is one of our best selling boots. But I wanted to make it an electric blue metallic. So I thought, oh my God, it'd be so great for evening wear, especially around awards shows. And people are now wearing boots with evening dresses. It's a new look, which I love. I'm kind of obsessed with it. Um, so I said, let's do this electric blue metallic icon boot. And then it came in and we put it on the office and everyone was like, oh my God, we love that. So I said, <laughs> let's, okay, well, let's photograph it. We literally shot it on me in the office, posted it on Instagram and said, who likes this boot? If you guys like it, I'll put an order in right now. So everyone went crazy. It had like the most likes we've ever had, like 5,000 wow. likes or something. Um, and we put it up for pre-order and where it's being delivered in a few weeks. So that's how much faster. And before the design process to shop floor was a year. That It's kind of crazy to me that so much of the fashion industry still works that way. Still works in the old school way. It really does. And it's, you know, it's it's taken so long for them to even realize that they have to change. Why do you think that is? You know, many, when people are used to building businesses in a certain way, they don't want to change, right? Because they, they can't see the future. They can't see how things are going to be disruptive until they get slapped in the face with it. And that's kind of what happened in the fashion industry. Now everyone's scrambling to think, Oh, how can we go digital? How can we go direct? How can we build e-commerce? But, you know, it's it's kind of after the horse has bolted. How do you think about crafting your message on social? Well, we tell all our stories through social. Um, so we use Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. But the, the most... Uh, Probably the one that's best for luxury is Instagram. It's very visual. Um, but we also talk a lot in our copy. We tell a lot of stories with our coffee. And I think copy, and that's, I think that's what's engaging with our customer as well at the moment. So tell me about the work you're doing around Equal Pay Day. So we do, a, we do a great project every year. So last year was our first year. And what we do is we give a discount depending on what the pay gap is between men and women. So last year it was 20%. Um, and we do that really just to create awareness um, and, you know, awareness around the issue. So we were hoping this year that the percentage would be lower. 
right? But unfortunately, it's still 20%. Um, and it's the only time of year that we give a discount. We never go on sale. We don't give discounts because we're already a great value. Um, but it's the one day we do something to drive awareness around equal pay for women. You deal with celebrities to some extent. Take us behind the scenes, pre-Oscars, what's it like? It's pretty crazy. So I was the first British brand to ever go to the Oscars. I was the first shoe brand to go. And when I was trying to figure out how to do it, what I realized was the stylists were running around. They were actually just buying shoes to go with the dresses. So I thought, well, there's an opportunity there. I could go and just service them. So, But I thought, well, how do I know what color to take or what size? So instead of taking thousands of pairs of shoes in different colors and different sizing so I could have every option possible, I decided I took everything in white satin and I took everything in black satin. So the white satin, I could dye any color. And I had someone sitting in the bathroom at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills dyeing shoes to go with dresses. (laughs) And it's insane. It's craziness behind because you don't really know what they're going to wear. They don't want to tell you uh, what they're going to wear in case it leaks. So stylists will come in with a tiny little swatch of fabric to show you maybe a color match. Um, And people also change their mind last minute. The dress came in. It didn't fit right. They've changed their mind. They want to go in a different direction. So that suddenly like three hours before, we've been dyeing shoes to go with dresses. People have walked out with wet dyed shoes. (laughs) You know, it's it's insane. It's 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 really crazy. But then it's it's kind of fun. You get on the you know, it's the adrenaline rush of it all. How valuable is that to see your shoes photographed? You know, somebody like Kate Blanchett or Julia Roberts wearing your design. So that's it. That's another thing that you actually you don't have the data on. Right? It's not you don't see sales spike the following day. Right, because somebody wore something to the Oscars. But I think what it does, it just gets uh, name awareness out. It gets you into the psyche of people. Um, I don't think it actually converts into sales. Is there someone you would kill to see photographed in your shoes today? Oh, wow. There, I mean, I love, there are many people I'd kill to see. Um, who could I, yeah, there are so many great girls. I don't even know who. What about Meghan, Meghan Markle? Oh, love Meghan Markle. <laughs> yes, of course. And then, you know, and she's marrying a she's Brit. She's an American so, princess. Yes. <laughs> I love, I, yeah, we've been watching that closely. So, yes, of course, I'd love to see her. All right, then. I, I hear from a number of, of businesses and entrepreneurs this, if you build it, they will come, but then they don't come. Or people say they're so excited about your brand, but getting them to actually make that purchase, there's a big distance between the two. How do you foment that excitement and also make sure that people are truly consuming what you're creating? So all our advertising now is digital. Um, you know, which also converts immediately. And then I think brands today are very different in the stories that they're telling. You know, before, you know, designers used to sit in their ivory tower and kind of dictate of everyone's going to be wearing red polka dots this season. Yes. <laughs> right. And now and now it doesn't work like that anymore. And also there used to be there was no direct relationship with the customer. So you would do an interview in a magazine or you would do um you know, a, a newspaper, 
and then a journalist would write the article and the designer would never talk to the customer. Now we have a direct communication which makes all the difference. You know, people actually would rather hear real stories and people be authentic about their lives. Obviously, I wrote a book in my shoes where I told the whole story of building Jimmy Choo Mm -hmm. and it had my personal life weaved in and out. And I was very honest because I thought if I sugarcoat my story, it's not going to help anybody, you know. And that's what designers always used to do. They used to be all glossy on the front and then you'd never see the mess behind. Mm -hmm. But I think people relate to you a lot more if you show them the the kind of mess behind the curtain. The the personal life. The real real thing, the real deal, yeah. And, And when you pulled the curtain back, some of the things you talk about in in the book, you know, your relationship with your mom, for example, wasn't a, a great relationship. No, it was very, very difficult. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people have related to me because of that. Or I was so honest about so many different things, whether it was building the business, my own drug addiction, having a very narcissistic mother, um, you know, whatever. And I think it's whatever it was, business or personal, people could relate to some part of my story. Um, so hopefully I inspired and gave people hope with some part of it. Speaking of breaking with tradition, so you were high school dropout. Yes, correct. Went to rehab early yes, on in life. Correct. <laughs> had a relatively tumultuous childhood. Yes. Growing up all over the world, Switzerland, Beverly yeah. Hills, London. London. What was that like? So I went from um, England to L.A. to Beverly Hills, and then I went back to boarding school in England, and the culture was so different. How did you think about the world back then. Did you think about yourself becoming a designer someday? What was your dream job? Well, I've been obsessed with fashion since I was a little girl. So instead of playing with, you know, toys, I used to play with clothes. And even at boarding school, this is before I knew what a stylist was, I was doing makeovers. Oh, my girlfriend. So I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't even realize that there was a name for it. Um, But I was doing that very early on. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do in fashion. I just knew I wanted to be in it. You know, so I just started working in the business. I started working um, at 18 years old on the shop floor um, in a multi-brand store in London called Brown's. I was selling Asdina Alaya clothes. Um, and actually, when I left there, I owed them more money than they ever paid me, <laughs> um, which was <laughs> I couldn't resist the Alaya clothes. Um, and then, you know, I went to work for a PR company and then worked for Mirabella magazine. Uh, and then I was at Vogue for five years. So actually, before I started Jimmy Choo, I had a pretty round, good round knowledge of the industry. What was the turning point for you to go from, you know, not the greatest path to figuring things out? You know, I got fired from Vogue um, and because I was my drug addiction started getting out of control. I was, you know, 26, 27 years old and I got fired from Vogue and I got scared. And I actually, uh, years later, I went back and I thanked the woman who fired me. She was called Anna Harvey and she'd been at Vogue for years and she's the most fabulous, elegant woman. And I actually am great friends with her today. And I went back and I actually thanked her because it was the wake up call I needed. And I got scared enough um, to get sober and change my life. And, you know, I wanted to make my life a success, but I was stuck in the trap of, of the addiction. For people out there who feel stuck in whatever way it is, what's your advice to getting unstuck? Um, so find find help um, in any way you can, whether that's uh, with AA meetings, 
therapy, support groups. Um, you know, there are, there's there's almost people don't realize how much help actually is on offer. Um, there is a ton out there, so I would say find help and um, and and be driven to do it. You know, usually it's not as scary as you think it's going to be. Now that you look back on all of this, what's been the toughest lesson along the way? Oh, the toughest lesson for me when I look back at my career is not speaking up, being afraid to speak up. I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, just speak up. Doesn't matter. Don't be afraid of being called a diva or, you know, any of those words that's used to describe women in business. Oh, she's difficult or, you know, it doesn't matter. I wish I had used my voice more. What do you think? How might things have been different had you done that? Um, you know, I think a lot of the deals, private equity deals we did with the company would have been different. I think my remuneration would have been different. I think um, level of respect for what I did probably would have been different. I would have been treated differently. Um, I was too, I, w- I let people kind of get away with things for too long. And I let bad behavior go on for too long. And that was a mistake. For our listeners who might not be familiar with private equity deals. So the way private equity deals oftentimes work is the private equity company puts a small amount of equity into your company. But then they also put a ton of debt on top of your company, which you ultimately have to pay off yes. in order to basically be free. Yes. So what they do is private equity. But here's the thing. People always make the mistake. They're like, well, you have private equity invest in your business. I'm like, no, they didn't. What they do is they buy shares from the previous owner. So when the first private equity company came in, they bought shares from Jimmy. But what they did, so they put no money, no capital went into the company. They just bought shares. But what they did with that, they went and borrowed money to buy their shares. And as the company, we paid the interest on their loan from cash flow. So they didn't, no one came in and actually put a ton of capital in the business and helped us grow. And, you know, they actually had a great ride because the curse of Jimmy Choo at that time was actually we were so successful, we could afford to do that. Um, so we paid the interest on their loan. And then they just traded off to each other. Um, you know, we got sort of passed around like a hot potato. <laughs> and by the way, so uh, Toys R Us, which is going through liquidation right now, had a private equity deal. They had they took on so much debt, they couldn't manage through it. And that's ultimately where they find With themselves it. now going out of business. I think for a lot of people, they hear private equity and they just assume, well, wow, it's this massive capital infusion. And then you just get to spend the money and have fun with it. No, it's not at all. If you want capital infusion, that's venture capital. You want to go to a VC firm. They'll actually invest in early stage companies. How have you uh, thought about fundraising with Tamara Mellon? So um, I went to, um, I actually have a VC firm, um, which has been so different. I cannot tell you to private equity. So VC firms are early stage investors. They do actually put money in the business. And the company I've worked with is called NEA, New Enterprise Associates. um, And they have been so incredibly supportive, so helpful, they really care about building uh, the right company with the right culture, the right people. They care about the long-term viability of it. It's been a completely different experience. When you went out and were initially marketing the company to venture capital firms, how were you choosing between them and how much did you have already prepared in terms of the model and what your projections were for the company? So we did. So I had an interesting story with Tamara Mellon. So I first of all launched it in 2013. 
And I tried to put a new business model down an old distribution channel. So I tried to put it through Neiman's and Saks and Nordstrom and all the big department store chains, which didn't work. They didn't want a new business model. So I actually thought I got to pull the ripcord on this. So I put that company through a Chapter 11. I reorganized myself. And then I went out and raised uh, money. And NEA came in and funded the new business model. Um, so we we did a business plan that was probably five years out. Um, you know, doing much more than that is how do you how do you guess? So we did it probably we did it five years plan five years ahead. And NEA <laughs> is one of the the biggest venture capital firms in the world. Yeah, they have seventeen billion under management. When you made that decision in twenty thirteen to pull the ripcord. How did you come to that decision? That that had to be very difficult. It was incredibly difficult because obviously you've got to go through the public humiliation of having a failure. Um, even though in Silicon Valley they like failures, they say that's where you learn. <laughs> but, you know, outside the rest of the world, don't probably see it that way. Um, so, you know, I had to think about, you know, I had to go through the public humiliation, but I knew it was the best way for me to really execute what I wanted to do with the business. It was the only way to get there. I knew that I would eventually get there. It would just take a little bit of time for people to realize what I was doing and see then me come out the other side and see it be successful. So I I knew I'd have a couple of years or I'd have a rough patch. Um, But when they saw what I was creating, they'd understand. It reminds me of the saying, you have to take one step backward, take two steps forward. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I was doing. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Um, Titles don't matter. And that was the worst. That was one of my biggest mistakes. And someone told you that early in your career? They told me that early in my career. And not because I think they were giving me bad advice. It's what they thought um, at the time. And then what I realized, you know, I... I was the creative director at Jimmy Choo, but I gave someone else a title, which was very confusing to the outside world. Um, so I would say titles probably do matter because it represents to the world what you're doing inside the company. Tamara Mellon, thank you so much for joining us on No Limits. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, No Limits listeners, stick around for a few more minutes here to hear from our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Frances Prado. She's the CEO of Ageless Beautiful Clever Creations, LLC, and inventor of Hanging Secrets. Frances recently won HSN's project American Dreams, which, by the way, one of our other entrepreneurs of the week, Hypatia Lopez, was also a part of. So I love that there's some crossover there. The two women probably know each other, right? Okay, Taylor's shaking her head. Yes, they know each other. Good. Uh, So I'm loving that we've got all of these inventors on our show. I love that you're sharing our stories. So without further ado, here's Frances Prado to tell you about Hanging Secrets. Hi, my name is Frances Prado. I'm from San Diego, California. I'm a manager for Costco and I've been so for the past 23 years. And for the record, I love Costco. My side hustle, my passion is being the CEO and inventor of Hanging Secrets. Hanging Secrets inspires and empowers women to embrace their femininity and not stuff it in a dark drawer. What makes Hanging Secrets very unique are these hard cups that protect the bras. We want every woman to know when they purchase a Hanging Secrets, they are helping other women because we donate a percentage of ourselves to breast cancer survivors. We believe it takes a woman to know what women need. And I leave you with create your dreams, crave your dreams, and cultivate your dreams. Thank you. 
I love that we're hearing from so many inventors out there sharing your stories. So keep it coming. I want to hear about the next big thing. And I'm sure our listeners do, too. Remember, you could head to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis for more of Francis's story. And if you or someone you know should be featured here as either the entrepreneur of the week or maybe you have a career question, send it to me at no limits with RJ podcast at gmail.com. A lot of you have been writing in. I love hearing from you. I know how busy we all are. So I really do appreciate it. Any of you who are taking the time, thank you. And to those of you who have been leaving us reviews, thank you so much. We're reading those too, and we're always working to build this empire and make it as good as it can be for you. So when we get that feedback, it is outstanding. For example, this one from Proletariat. Uh, I loved the subject heading, This Lady is Smart, (laughs) along with the five stars. And Proletariat writes, Play it for your mom, your niece, your daughter, grandma, but more importantly, for your son's dad's grandpas. It's for everyone. Inspiring, exciting, and just really good, accessible interviews. Awesome. Thank you for leaving that review, Proletariat. Oh, and I just got a push notification, so I'll be looking at my iPhone now. Reminder, if you're sharing the show on social, you can use the hashtag no limits podcast and finally a shout out to the great team here who helps make this happen week after week producer taylor dunn editor michelle boncardo research assistant annie osakwe and the abc radio team david Rind, elizabeth russo josh cohan andrew kelp and steve jones hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina kohlberg a morning television producer We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 